Oh gosh. <laughs> Back in high school, um, I wasn't in charge of buying what pads I could wear. My mom did that because she's really cheap. <laughs> she went for the off-brand, really ugly, heavy sort of pads that sometimes didn't have wings. That's Lerkana Chong, a second-generation Cambodian-American writer who lives in Oakland, California, and who apparently had to make do with some pretty terrible pads as a teen. I was sitting in my, I think, seventh period science class. And so I was leaving, I noticed there was like a red stain on the chair, and I started freaking out. Uh, I like discreetly wiped it off, and then I like ran to the bathroom, and yeah, I checked, and yeah, there was some major leakage happening. I was so embarrassed, and I wasn't even sure like when it started or if anyone had noticed by that point. I felt like such a great sense of shame, even though no one had actually called me out about it. But looking back, it it's not as hard for me to to talk about it. I think, although I do still feel like instinctually like a a sense of disgust or shame around it. But you know, a lot of people bleed from their vaginas, so yeah, <laughs> <laughs> roughly fifty percent of the population. Yeah, so it's. Yeah, I feel like, yeah, it happened. I think we all know this story, as women who bleed and with that bleeding have been taught to be ashamed and embarrassed about it. And if this doesn't speak to you, I ask that you pass this episode on to your Asian American friends, partners, sisters, cousins. I promise, it'll be worth it. Because this will be good, but also because we're doing a giveaway. With the support of Lunapads, a woman-owned social enterprise based in, that's right, Vancouver, BC, you can enter to win one of two fully loaded kits of reusable menstrual cups and cloth pads. These gift baskets are loaded with goodies, including their bestseller, the Diva Cup. And all you have to do is like the Sample Space Facebook page and reshare our post about this series. If you can't wait, the amazing ladies at lunapads.com are offering our lovely listeners of Sample Space 15% off all your purchases with the code NEWMEDIA. All you have to do is enter the code, and huzzah, your period just got way better. Well, I mean, you get to use awesome products, but yeah, the crafts will still be there. Sorry. This is Sample Space by Hero Media. I'm Diana Wong, and this is the first of a three-part series on periods, pussies, and power. Asian American women and our sexuality. This episode is part one on becoming a woman. Today, we hear stories about periods and panties and what it means to embrace our womanhood and how that embrace comes in the form of self-love. Now, you probably think I'm a crazy leftist who has no respect for decorum and niceties, including not talking about periods and bleeding and flow. Maybe you think I'm a raging feminist who loves sex. But the truth is far more politically subversive. But before we get to that, we've got to talk about why this topic is so important. For this special series, I set out to answer one question. As Asian American women, what do we stand to gain by embracing our sexuality? I realize that to even begin unpacking the answer, we have to consider each part of the question, including what sexuality is, how our sexuality as Asian American women is unique, and most importantly, why is this even worth talking about? So what is sexuality? 
Well, we know that sexuality is not just limited to sex and intercourse. Sexuality begins the moment we are born. Sexuality is remarked upon when a girl is old enough to bleed and be shamed and harassed for her body. Sexuality is exploited in the images of demure geishas and kinky dragon ladies. Sexuality is shamed upon embrace or acknowledgement that it is ours for us and not anyone else. But for a more tangible and actionable understanding, I thought about our stages of life as women. Puberty and becoming a woman, having our first sexual encounters, good or bad, on our own or with others. And then finally, a step that many women don't even get to, embracing and exploring our bodies. And so those naturally became the topics of this three-part series. The first, this episode, about becoming a woman. The second, our first sexual experiences. And the third, owning our bodies and our sexuality. So we're going to define sexuality for this series based on how we encounter it in our lives as women. That makes sense. But what makes the sexuality of Asian American women particularly unique are the internal forces and external pressures exerted upon us. Internally, Asian cultures tend to avoid addressing sexuality. And when our families do, it is most often to lecture about modesty or virginity. And externally, because of colonialism, warfare, and American imperialism, Asian women are now seen as objects for someone else's sexual pleasure. From G.I. Joe during the Korean and Vietnam Wars of the 60s and 70s, and the 1990s occupation of the Philippines, to an American in Thailand today, looking for one or more of the thousands of women and girls who work in the sex tourism industry there. In this context, I would say that Asian American women who find themselves straddled in this intersection face a unique challenge. But why is it worth an entire three-part series to discuss this? I mean, Asian American women, overall, are killing it. We are one of the most upwardly mobile demographics in America. We drive the model minority myth. We place well in Ivy League schools. We work hard for ourselves and our families. We are breaking glass and bamboo ceilings every single day. We are lawyers and doctors, businesswomen and ballet dancers. And we want to keep doing this. We want to keep pushing these ceilings. We want the next Ellen Powes promoted to partner. We want to see Constance Wu star in a major Hollywood production. Instead of tall tales about our sideways vaginas that can exude ping pong balls, we want stories that encompass the whole gamut of our experiences as women, first, second, third generation Asian Americans, and individuals with unique sexual identities. Which brings us all the way back to the question we are trying to answer. As Asian American women, what do we stand to gain by embracing our sexuality? So again, welcome to the first part of this three-part series, Becoming a Woman. Throughout this episode and this series, we are going to hear stories from Asian American women about our sexuality in all its color, nuance, and embarrassing hilarity. We'll explore getting our periods for the first time, losing our virginity, discovering masturbation, pursuing sexual pleasure, and through all of it, find out what it means to embrace our sexuality as Asian American women. And it only seems right to start at the very beginning. This first act is a series of vignettes of women recollecting their first encounters with their periods, in all its hilarious, cringeworthy, embarrassing, and torturous splendor. Act one, all of the above. I think we were like maybe eight or nine. 
I remember she took us on a walk and we were walking around and she explained periods to us. And I remember thinking it was this mysterious thing. I remember thinking at the time it was also weird that she had made a point to take us out on this walk. So it must mean something. That's a beer hawk, a first-generation Bangladeshi-American. Abir's mom had the forethought to take Abir and her younger sister on this walk to tell them about what to expect. But, like many Asian moms, Abir's was not exactly comfortable with having this conversation because it meant talking about, or rather, around, sexuality. But it wasn't all bad because at least Abir got to skip class once in a while. In Islam, you're considered unclean when you're on your period, so you're not supposed to go to the mosque or pray or... And I remember I would actually take this to be like a bit of a boon because we had to go to these Islamic classes once a week at this uh, mosque in the Pittsburgh area. And so if I had my period, I could just be like, well, I can't go. Yeah. And so that would be a way of getting out of whatever Islamic studies duties. So aside from telling her mother why she was missing Islamic classes once a month, Abir and her mom didn't really have reason to discuss menstruation further. That is until Abir joined the swim team. As part of this series, I've spoken to a lot of Asian-American women, and they all seem to agree on one thing. Tampons are a big no-no amongst Asian moms. Most people don't even want to bring them up. But unfortunately for a beer... I had really heavy periods, and so I feel like I had these double pad kind of things. I, didn't th- I don't think I used tampons at first, because my, my mom was not cool with that. And definitely at night, I just constantly washing stuff, like washing sheets, washing underwear, washing whatever clothes. We're wearing dark clothes in the hopes that it wouldn't like show if it did actually come through. And then when I joined the swim team, I had to start wearing tampons. And so I told my mom, you know, I need these tampons. Otherwise, the coach is not going to deal with someone just being like, oh, I'm not going to swim practice for like a whole week. No, that wasn't going to be acceptable. So then I got tampons. I think... When I first asked for them, maybe she said no, and I was like, all right, cool. But then once I joined the swim team and said, I need them, she said, okay, fine, and she got them for me. But hey, at least the beer's mom believed that she needed them. In our next vignette, we hear from Joyce, a queer second-generation Japanese-American, whose mom was a bit of a skeptic. So I first got my period when I was 10 years old. And I remember my mom saying that, oh, in America, the food is really rich, so you're going to get your period when you're young. I'm older, so at the time, the question was, am I going to get a self-adhesive pad or the belt? Okay, I've got to get in here and talk about the belts that Joyce mentioned. I looked them up for all of us, and if you can imagine, the belt itself is a stretchy band around the waist, kind of like suspenders for your hips with clips in the back and front to secure a cotton pad. And then on top of all of this, you would wear your normal underwear and then your pants. But if you think this would prevent the pad from shifting, you are, sadly, incorrect. So fortunately, I didn't have to wear the belt because I was going out and the self-adhesive thing was coming in. I got some maxi pads and it wasn't always the dry weave. It's the kind of maxi pad that's just pure cotton. So it would get kind of soggy and sloshy and you'd always feel sort of wet. Happily for Joyce, it was the 1980s, and maxi pads with adhesives, like the ones we have now, were on the up and up, so she escaped having to use the belt. But out of the fire into the frying pan, because she was still cursed by the millennium-long tradition of menstrual cramps. I had really bad cramps, so bad that I would 
be writhing in pain. I'd be throwing up, and then I would pass out. They were very severe, severe pain. And Tylenol would not work at all, but ibuprofen would. Like, it's the it's a different kind of painkiller. But I didn't figure this out for, like, the first four or five years. So my mom used to say, well, first, she didn't believe that I was having cramps because she had no cramps. So she thought that I was acting. And whenever I got my period and the school would call her and say, you know, your daughter is like dying in pain, my mom would be like, oh, she's just acting, whatever. And then she'd be pissed off that she'd have to leave work to pick me up to take me home. But it was an intense kind of puberty, I think, of very painful, painful periods and then having your mother not believe you. I can't imagine passing out due to cramps. But what's actually harder to fathom is my mom not believing that I had them. Not that my mom was all that involved. In fact, she played a pretty passive role in helping me deal with my period. Thanks, sis. And she certainly didn't get a good look the way Melissa Harianto's mom did. When I first got my period, I didn't even realize that I had it. I thought that my underwear was stained like from me not wiping myself after I pooped one time because someone told me I needed to get out of the bathroom really fast. That's Melissa, a second-generation Indonesian-American, talking about getting her first period. And like lots of young women, it just happened upon her one day. You know, you look down and there's some gunk and it's not the right cherry red blood you're expecting because you're 12 and you don't know any better. It's more dark and murky and, unsurprisingly, easy to mistake for poop. And given that Melissa's legally blind, it's understandable she couldn't tell. My mom took me to the bathroom and she saw the stain on my underwear and said, is that your period? So I found that out like while I'm at the amusement park. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> How old were you? 12. Had she kind of prepped you before that? Well, I don't know how much prep exactly was put into it. But I mean, my older sisters, I do remember one of them when they started their period. And they had to like wash their underwear in the sink in the bathroom and stuff. But that happened at home. And this is me in an amusement park wondering what I'm supposed to do. And like all of the women I talked to, alongside yours truly, Melissa had no idea what was actually happening inside her body. And nobody bothered to explain. Not her mom, not her sex ed teacher. I knew I got it and that it just happens every month, but my mom never explained to me why or anything like that. And I think, honestly, I learned it in health ed in college and not health ed really in high school. Then I learned, oh, wow, the period, it happens when the egg is not fertilized and needs to be disposed of. Totally didn't know that. (laughs) Health class in, like, college doesn't skip that stuff, but I feel like health class in high school, they talk about, oh, what you need to do for first aid or all the bad things that can happen to you, like STIs or, like, Drunk driving, not about look at the positive side, you know, like being sex positive. It was nothing like that. Like most sex ed classes, Melissa's focused on being safe and responsible, with no mention of autonomy or pleasure or understanding your body and its changes in a social context, which Melissa was silently eased into. 
when I was in fifth grade, about 10 years old, that's when my mom had me starting to wear like those kids sports bras. And ever since I was in elementary school, they used to make you wear these school uniforms that are like a white button up on the top and the bottom would be either navy blue pants or a navy skirt. I wore navy blue pants and my mom always had me wear a t-shirt underneath my school uniform and have it tucked into my pants. And when I think back on it now, I think she did that on purpose because of the possibility of when my breasts start to grow. And then as I got older and bigger, then I got actual bras. It didn't really occur to me to ask her why I needed to wear it. I just kind of accepted it like, oh, okay, I guess I'm wearing this now underneath my shirt. I asked, Diana here, and I remember asking my mom. I remember having to summon up some courage to do it, but there I was, holding this beige and yellow striped training bra in my hands and asking my mom why I had to wear it, because it was so itchy and so uncomfortable. She gave me this sort of exasperated look and told me it would make me look better in my clothes. End of discussion. And that was probably the last question I asked her about my period and my body for the next few decades. I think that memory isn't a far cry from Priyanka Wally's experience. Priyanka's a second-generation Indian-American who is also encouraged not to ask too many questions about her period when she got it at 13. It was literally on my 13th birthday that I started my period. And I thought that that was really interesting, like just that the fact that the earth had run around the sun exactly 13 times from the moment I was born and then boom, like biologically, my body was like, okay, it's time to evolve. But it wasn't until she was well into her 20s during medical school rotations, when she had her most embarrassing period moment. I had just done like an overnight call, literally managing a bunch of patients, running around, didn't sleep, didn't do anything, and I was I was menstruating. I had been up all night, and in the morning, we get together and we go over certain patient cases. It's called morning report. And basically, I I was so busy that I didn't realize that I bled through my pad, I bled through my underwear and my scrubs, and it actually came onto my white coat. Let's take a moment to appreciate what's going on here. Priyanka had been up all night on call at the hospital, and she'd been so busy that she hadn't had time to go to the bathroom. So she ended up bleeding through her pad, her underwear, her scrubs, and then her white coat. The coat's supposed to be pristine, right? And I had no idea. Another colleague was like, Priyanka, there's blood on the back of your coat. And if you can remember how embarrassing a spill in high school was, magnify that by a thousand. And that's what Priyanka was feeling when she was told, as a doctor in training, by her colleague, while at work, that she had bled through four layers of clothing. And it was very obvious that it wasn't like a patient had bled out on my arm. It wasn't anything like that. Like it was positioned in a way that it was super obvious, like this is coming from her bottom area, you know, and like it sucked. I was super embarrassed because I felt like, I felt like, oh, I didn't take care of myself. I didn't have my shit together, basically. 
So yes, it was deeply embarrassing. But why? Because she's a woman? Because a regular bodily function had happened to her? Because she was so busy saving lives, she hadn't gone to the restroom for eight hours? Yeah, it was just super embarrassing. As a female working in a male-dominated profession, I couldn't be like, oh, I need to work less because I just need time to change my pad. That would have been so inappropriate. I would have not felt comfortable advocating for myself like that, which is unfortunate because that kind of a comment, it would have been viewed as like, oh, she's hard to work with or something, you know. That's deeply ironic considering the field you work in. Yeah. Did it occur to you that you shouldn't be embarrassed? Not at the time, because I was so stressed out about taking care of the patients. And I did this back then. I'm getting better at not doing it, but I really internalized it. I really internalized it and wasn't very self-loving. I was like, oh, why can't you get your shit together? Like, just get it together. And that's our initiation into womanhood. It's all of the above and more. As Abir, Joyce, Melissa, and Priyanka shared, it's stained underwear and bedsheets. It's mistaking blood for poop. And it's telling your friends they could have all of your stuff because your cramps are so painful, you're certain death is imminent. But for every time we perform that awkward backwards twist to spot for spills from behind, for every time we whisper about our periods, or buy sanitary napkins for our unsanitary vaginas. We are conceding a kind of shame and embarrassment about our bodies and our identities, which is why it's important to open up this conversation and, well, take a good long look at ourselves. And where better to start looking than down there? Act two, foreign country, one Asian girl's vagina monologue from Lerkana Chong. Your mother's pussy is a Cambodian slur I heard growing up. It's similar to how motherfucker is employed in the English language. It's similar to how my mother instilled in me the belief that my vagina is inherently dirty. Girls need to bathe every day, she said in Khmer. Otherwise, our vaginas will become filthy. Every time I heard my mother say pussy, she spat out the word as if she couldn't be rid of it fast enough. I stayed as far away as I could from my vagina. I never looked at it under my mother's roof. I never touched it. It was some distant place that just happened to be located between my legs. After hitting puberty, I started getting discharged. I thought there was something wrong with me. My mother thought so too. She took me to the doctor, a middle-aged Vietnamese man who always prescribed my mother drugs to solve her problems, physical, emotional, and psychological. I think I have an infection, I mumbled and said little else. He solemnly nodded and scribbled a prescription for antifungal cream. I tried using it. It didn't work. I felt dirty and shameful about my private parts for many years after that. Sometimes I would scrub down there with soap. It would sting and never fix the problem. But for the few minutes I did it, I felt clean. I watched the vagina monologues a total of four times in college and felt empowered in an abstract sense. I didn't really love my vagina. I was frightened by it. I was repulsed by it. 
What I loved was the idea of loving my vagina. My friend from high school was the first person to tell me about the stereotype of Asian girls having sideways vaginas. I didn't know my vagina very well at the time, but I was acquainted enough to know that was some racist, sexist-ass bullshit. My friend and roommate from college, a biology major, told me vaginas are very clean and know how to take care of themselves. I wondered if mine was the exception. I had my first pap smear when I turned 21, the recommended age to start getting them. Because I had no health insurance at the time, I went to Planned Parenthood. The doctor there asked me to spread my legs and scoot up the exam table. The speculum was a motherfucking pain in my vagina. I tensed up as she examined a place I rarely visited myself. Your vagina is healthy and normal, the doctor reported. I didn't believe her. But what about the discharge, I asked. Every vagina is different, she said. Some women get a little discharge, some get a lot. It can depend on your cycle. A year later, I went to Planned Parenthood again and saw a different doctor who said the same thing. I still couldn't quite believe what they were telling me, although there was no good reason for them to lie to me. By the time I was back on actual health insurance, I was on friendlier terms with my vagina. I made eye contact with it, interacted with it, but was still somewhat wary of it. When my OBGYN reaffirmed to me that my vagina was normal, I realized maybe it was time I start believing it. Instead of fixating on the possible dysfunction of my vagina, I began obsessing over its appearance. It didn't look the way a porno vag did. And even though I knew nothing in porn is realistic, and that porn is primarily constructed through the male gaze, and fuck Eurocentric and Western standards of beauty, and blah blah blah, I couldn't help but feel that my vagina looked kind of ugly, and any hetero cis dude who jacked off the porn and internalized ideas of what women's bodies looked like would take one look between my legs and say no thanks. Any guy who says shit about your vagina is a douchebag, my friends told me, and some rational part of me agrees with this. I've eventually come to terms with my vagina, but I don't love it the way white cis women seem to love theirs. I know genitals do not equal gender, but cannot deny that my genitals have a nebulous history and relationship with how I personally experience the amalgamation of my gender and my race. I wonder if I would be a better self-loving person if I loved my vagina without apology. Or maybe my cadexis is enough in a world where ignorance is bliss and apathy reigns supreme. My vagina is no longer a foreign land. It is a vacation house I don't frequent enough nor tend to enough. Most of the time, I simply stop by to trim the bushes. My only other visitor is my OBGYN, who knows her way around better than I do. I like to invite a guy over, but it never feels right. I wouldn't know how to treat such a guest in my house. I couldn't be sure he could respect my house and agree to its rules before venturing inside. I wouldn't know if he could accept my house the way I have learned to. Every story I hear, from the graphic horror of being unconscious behind a dumpster of a strange man on top of you, to the unsettling, blurry scenario of an ex insisting you have sex with him and caving in because you're so tired and he's already unbuttoning your jeans, 
makes me want to board up all the windows and doors of my house and move far, far away. But that's not possible. This metaphor has limits, after all. For now, I can take refuge in this house. Maybe the porch doesn't look how I want it to. Maybe the bedroom ceiling leaks. Maybe no one but my OBGYN will come to visit. But this is a home owned by me. This is a home meant for me. And one of the most important things I've done in my life is embrace this incontrovertible fact. That was Lurkana Chong, a Cambodian-American writer based in Oakland, California. You can read more of her writing at lampshadeonherhead.blog. This is Sample Space by Hira Media, and we are at the third and final act of this episode, on becoming a woman. As we've heard so far, becoming a woman is beautiful, painful, joyful, and frightening. But it's not just about the physical changes, bleeding, or vaginas. In fact, it's really about embracing what you have, who you are. To become a woman is to love yourself. Act three, three waves. My name is Jenna Rapuas. I am 41 years old. Jenna was born in the Philippines, but grew up in 1980 San Francisco with her working class parents. My family is also very Catholic. Uh, grew up in a very traditional Filipino family with one older brother. And so my parents, they made sure that my brother and I went through Catholic school just because they thought that that would be in alignment with what their dream was, was to have a better life in the United States. Growing up, Jenna was a good Catholic, volunteering at Mass and assisting with services. But she was also reclusive, preferring to be left alone with her own thoughts than to share them with others. I was always aware of my uniqueness and my difference in growing up. And so I never liked myself when I was young. I was like self-hate and self-doubt and awkwardness, body issues galore. (laughs) And this wasn't just a case of teenage self-consciousness. It went beyond being embarrassed about pimples and growing pains. But then high school ended and college offered Jenna an opportunity to reinvent. And so after I finished Catholic high school, I went to college. And that was when I felt like I was most free and liberated and identified mostly as being gay. And so in college, I was actually really like heavily deep in API, LGBT, and participated in establishing UC Santa Cruz's first queer of color student organization was really heavily involved in that and was really like really made an impression on me and who I was at that time. Out and proud of it, Jenna was a new person. Gone was the reclusive Catholic teen. The new Jenna was a social justice warrior and her work with the API, Asian Pacific Islanders, LGBT community in college, led Jenna to pursue activism as a career. She moved back to San Francisco in the early 90s with this new sense of self and affirmation of who she really was, now that she had found her tribe and her mission. So life happened, obviously, you know, you finished college, come back to San Francisco, you know, expected to change the world. My first job actually out of Santa Cruz was working at Lyric um, in San Francisco, which is an LGBT organization working to 
empower and connect young LGBT youth in San Francisco. And that really actually made an impression also in terms of who I was and really the connection with the LGBT community in San Francisco. And that was the first wave of Jenna's coming of age, coming out to her Filipino Catholic family as gay and becoming an activist in the API LGBT community. Yet there was still something missing. But after a while, I knew that there was always still something different. I just never really felt like I belonged or I fit in. There was something there that I knew that was missing. So later on, a couple years later into getting really more heavily involved in HIV work in the city, I met Jealousy Jacobs, who was a drag queen, actually. And that opened up my world and my perspective in terms of the trans identities and who transgender people are. And that made me, I had like this aha moment of, wow, I really can identify with being trans. Jealousy opened my eyes up in terms of people who were born uniquely different and identify with the other gender and really opened my eyes up in terms of what gender identity and gender expression was. And that was an eye opener for me. So it took me a while to make that decision in terms of, uh, could this be possible for me? And could I really be transgender? And what does that mean? I want to take a moment here to differentiate between these two internal conflicts Jenna faced. In listening to her story, it's pretty easy to lump her struggles over her gender identity and sexual orientation into one. And as interconnected as they may be, I think that pretty often, on the outside, we conflate how it feels to be trans with how it feels to be gay. Back in her days as an altar boy, Jenna was a teenager struggling with an attraction to other males. This confusion and uncertainty was met with the social norms of the 1980s and an explicit homophobia in Jenna's religion and culture. But having found a community of supportive Asian Pacific Islanders and LGBTQ folks in college, Jenna was able to come out and embrace her sexual orientation. Jenna's second wave of understanding her gender identity was a really different kind of struggle. Jenna saw this great divide between how she felt on the inside and how she looked in the mirror and to the rest of the world on the outside. For Jenna, this divide manifested itself as self-hate and self-loathing until she met jealousy and started to question her gender identity. So Jenna went through these two distinct waves of coming of age. First, as a gay Asian-American man, and then later, as an API trans woman. Eventually, in 2000, when Jenna was in her late 20s, she started transitioning. And as she entered this new part of her life as a woman that the rest of the world could see, she finally started to feel comfortable in her own body for the first time. And it was then that she met Jimmy Ta, a Vietnamese-American. They fell in love and were together for nine years. Until Jimmy, who cared for things like this, suggested they get married. I was the one who never was really in the idea of marriage, but he was really into it. So I went along with it, and it was actually a really joyous moment. In 2010, he was diagnosed with lung cancer, and so he struggled with that for a year, and I supported him, and um, and he passed away in 2011. Um, and, um, and so it has taken these three waves of coming out, transitioning, and finally, finding, then losing love, for Jenna to really truly understand what it means to love herself. 
I think having to deal with that the past three years of grief and just the disappointment and like having to navigate the world without this person that you thought you were going to like be with has made me grow up even more. And by growing up, I mean that kind of like you merge myself in who I was and what I was and what I was about. You know, I think that's something that I realized over my past 41 years is that, you know, I really have to like love myself first. So even though womanhood may seemingly begin with our cycles and bleeding, as Jenna suggests, becoming a woman is just as much about loving who you are and what you have. So we should love ourselves. That seems like an obvious answer. Empowered women love themselves. But we usually aren't alone when it comes to sex and sexuality. So self-love is only a partial answer to our original question. What do we stand to gain by embracing our sexuality as Asian American women? In this next episode, we look at, if not, what we gain by embracing our sexuality, what we stand to lose. Here's a teaser of part two of this series, wherein we look at what happens when we are touched for the very first time. I think someone farted at one point and we were like, what's that smell? And then he lost his erection. <laughs> so funny. That was an excerpt of part two, touched for the very first time. And because we've released all three episodes at once, you can listen to part two right now. But before you do that, make sure to enter our giveaway for one of two gift bags chock full of awesome products from Lunapads. Founded by two CEOs, Lunapads is a social enterprise that makes reusable period cups and pads, and their Diva Cup is life-changing. I can hear your skepticism about putting a cup up there, but you can wear it for 12 hours. Think about not worrying about your period for 12 whole hours. Get yours now by entering our giveaway. All you have to do is like Sample Space on Facebook, and reshare our post about this series to all of your friends. Or, if you can't wait, you can use this special code just for Sample Space listeners and get 15% off all of your lunapad.com purchases online. Just type in new media at the checkout. This is Sample Space, and that was On Becoming a Woman, the first part of our three-part series on Asian American women and our sexuality. My name is Diana Wong, Thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode, you can listen to the rest of the series now by subscribing to Sample Space on iTunes or your podcast app of choice. We would love to hear what you thought of this episode and our three-part series. So tweet to us at samplespacepod or email to info at hearamedia.com. The interview between Jenna Rapuz and Lotus Dao was recorded in 2015 and is a part of the Dragon Fruit Project, an intergenerational oral history project that explores queer Asian and Pacific Islanders and their experiences with love and activism. The Dragon Fruit Project is a project of APINC, API Quality Northern California, a Bay Area-based community organization that builds LGBTQ API power. You can learn more about Dragon Fruit Project at dragonfruitproject.org. Special thanks, recognition, and accolades go to Lerkana Chong, Abir Hawk, Joyce S., Melissa Harianto, Serena Olson, and Laura Miller at the Lighthouse Center for the Blind and Visually Impaired, Priyanka Wally, Jenna Rapuz, Lotus Dao, Emlyn and the good folks at API Quality Northern California, Celine Parinas Shimizu, Kristen Chung, and the leadership of the many women who have come before and will come after. 
We are going to end this episode with a poem by Lerkana Chong titled Womanhood. did I become a woman? It was not when blood fell from my womb for the first time, the fifth time, the umpteenth time, staining my underwear, my clothes, my bed, the chair, covering me in shame. It was not when blood blossomed bright on toilet paper after he was done crashing into me in the backseat I will come to think of as a memorial I want to rip out and set on fire to desecrate the sight of his hit and run. It was not when blood, red lipstick became my new favorite weapon, carefully applied to accentuate teeth that learn to bite, highlighting a mouth that would lure you in, devour you, and puke out your remains. I think I think I became a woman when I found the grace to fall in love with who I am. When sorry began to taste bitter on my tongue. When screaming my pain and joy was the only way to heal, to survive, to live. That was my becoming. <laughs>